0: Hey, hello everyone and welcome to the third and final session of the battlefields of the future conference hosted by the Brussels schools of international studies. And today's session will be focusing on development in a post-colonial context and to maybe set the tone for this discussion. So the aim of this session is to examine and deconstruct the contradictions of global development and exploitative realities of the divide between the global north and the global south. This session is going to be organized in two different discussions. The first one will be focusing on development institutions in the post-colonial era. And the second discussion will be on sustainable development in the 21st century. And I am delighted to be uh, joined on this great panel today with five great speakers. The first speaker is Professor Dan Banik, who is a professor of political science and director of at the Oslo SDG Initiative at the Center for Development and Environment at University of Oslo. The second speaker today is Eric Nbotigi, Humanitarian Access and Security Officer at Intes- INTE-SOS. Third speaker is Abnori Kojak, a project officer at the UNDP Kosovo. A fourth speaker, who is today in the room with me, is Jan van der Murtele who is an Associate Research Fellow at the United Nations University. And finally, but not least, Abike Sawyer, who is a policy analyst at the Office of the President of the African Development Bank. Many thanks for joining us today. And I would love to kick off this discussion with your expectations for this discussion. So can you tell me in maybe two words, what do you expect from this? And I might turn first to Jan, who is in the room with me. Jan, what do you expect from today's conversation?
1: Well, uh, an open conversation, not too much ideology, if possible. And uh, the the thing I want to convey is um, about partnership, because all development is about partnerships. And in a partnership, we very often put the emphasis quickly on money, especially international partnerships, money, money, money. And I want to throw out to the audience for you to take note. There are two coins to that partnership. The first one is the co- the side of money changing hands which is important, but not the most important one. The other side of the coin of a partnership is ideas changing minds. And I have learned in my many years that we put the emphasis on the wrong side of the coin. And I'm not saying that finance is not important, but it's about ideas changing minds. That is what partnership is about.
0: Thank you, Jan. I think these are powerful words to start the conversation. Abike, can I just invite you to maybe share in two words what you expect from today? Yes, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone.
2: I'm really looking forward to learning and sharing what I do know during today's discussion. We, of course, live in a world which is very balanced in terms of education, opportunity, wealth, social well-being and social injustice. And of course, in order to address these issues, development agencies such as the African Development Bank, the World Bank, the IMF, the IB have sought to introduce interventions to create a more level playing field. Of course, I'm a big supporter of the spirit behind this, but I am realistic enough to recognize that these interventions don't provide all the answers. Some cases have made matters worse. So panels like this do really help to educate improve the manner in which these interventions are designed, conceived and then implemented. And I really hope that my contributions today, along with the contributions panelists will help us
0: to actually move the development agenda forward. Thank you. Thank you, Avnor. Powerful words to start this debate. Professor Dan, can I invite you to also share your main expectations from today?
3: Oh, that's a great question. I don't know what to expect. Uh, I think it should be up to the students, really, to to uh, for frame that. I'm just delighted to be in Malawi, a country I've been studying for 16 years after two years you know i've returned so i'm super excited i'm coming to you from my hotel room in blantar and one of the things that i suppose you know has struck me is that despite all of this hope that one had a lot of my colleagues have had my students here in terms of democracy new elections um, reversal of election results there was a lot of hope when i was here two years ago Not much has changed is really the the summary. And so a key issue really has to do with the role of institutions, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But there's often this tendency of saying that Malawi is very different from many other low income countries. And one of the things that I I think is interesting here is that there's a lot of focus on characterizing countries like Malawi as being policy rich, but implementation poor. I think that is a bit too simple. I think sometimes it's not just the implementation. It actually can be very, it could be bad policies or good policies that are not really formulated, uh, keeping in tune with local reality. So, you know, that picture is a bit more complex. It's not just implementation, but also formulation.
0: Thank you very much. So good words. Maybe we oversimplify policies. This would be a great point of discussion for today. Okay, I will invite Abnori to say a few words. Abnoy, what are your main expectations? Thank you
4: very much. Um, this conference is a great opportunity for all of us to discuss on common and distinct challenges that we are facing in our countries, region and beyond, and be able to come up with recommendations on what would be best practices to make the most of international aid for me it will be valuable to learn from other speakers experiences and recommendations who are probably experts on in international relations and i'm ready to share my perspective on this project that i have been involved hands-on on international aid projects and to come up with a few recommendations to move on
0: thank you so i note that it's all about how do we implement right okay eric can i invite you to also share
5: Uh, Yes, thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, this is a very uh, interesting uh, topic of discussion. Um, uh, For for us, uh, it's uh, a bit tricky because if we are looking at the the sustainable development goals and its implementation, often in uh, what we've termed uh, less less, uh, developed countries or developing countries, we usually have an issue of accountability, so um, I also have. Uh, so I'm looking forward to 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 establishing a clear cut line between uh, development aid and humanitarian aid, and who decides what goes where and what should be implemented. And equally, I think uh, it's going to be interesting for me to see the role of many groups, especially young people, in uh forging these uh, agendas but uh interestingly uh, I know that uh, Africa has like the agenda 2063 so uh, but the global development goals are uh 20 2015 to 2030 but Africa has 2063 so I mean just to understand all these things so I'm really expectant and I'm looking forward to learning from my co-panelists with a wealth of knowledge and experience in this sector thank you
0: Thank you, Eric. I've noted quite a number of important words, key words for today. First of all, finance. Is it all about finance? Then the the issue of accountability. Who is accountable? We need to learn from each other, but we also need to question the role of the institutions and the way they have been set up. And this actually is a wonderful segue into the first part of today's conversation, which will focus on developing institutions in the post-colonial era. And here the idea is really to examine how investments and international development aid are shaped by Western ideology and legal regimes based on liberalism and agendas for growth. And I would love to start a kick off this conversation by inviting both Professor Dan and Abike to exchange um, around one question. So the idea is really for it to be interactive and to have a bit of a conversation style uh, dialogue. And the question here is. While having advanced the global development agenda, the World Bank's contributions have also led to free trade policies with many detrimental effects on the environment, labor rights, and social welfare, to name only some. Where these detrimental effects are widely recognized, little has changed on the ground. Why is that? And I'm turning to both of you who would like to kick off this conversation. Uh, Abike, would you like to share a few words? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Josephine. Uh, so, yes, uh, I do
2: definitely acknowledge that the World Bank has put forward a global development agenda that has been positive in many respects. However, the trade practices that have emanated from World Bank interventions haven't sufficiently recognized the unequal footing that development countries are on vis a vis developed countries with whom they trade, in my opinion. Uh, while I recognise that, of course, trade is preferable to aid, it's important to recognise that without a level playing field, free trade practices will lead to both scrupulous and unscrupulous actions, which will always cause infringement on labour, the environment, social injustice and other factors. So the challenge with face is how to balance aid, trade appropriately. And um, for example, I... Uh, Africa is mostly responsible for the world's cocoa production. I mean, just Ghana and Guadalupe where I am currently produce 70% of the world's cocoa, yet the continent doesn't really produce much chocolate. So you can see that the real value of those raw materials doesn't actually come back to the continent. Uh, it, chocolate is a $10 billion market in Europe. So um, at the African Development Bank, we are rolling out a programme called Special Agro-Industrial Processing Zones, which is something I'm working on a lot. And it provides a backbone infrastructure and enabling, enabling policies for uh, agricultural production and processing uh, without going into too much detail. Um, but we're definitely doing everything we can to ensure inclusivity and that the interventions aren't leading to exploitative practices and environmental abuse and... Basically, making
0: sure that farmers and people get a fair day's pay. Yeah, thanks, Abike. So, what I'm noting from what you just said is the question of balance and bringing the value back where it comes from, right? I mean, this is key. It's not about taking the the growth, the product, and creating value elsewhere that does not benefit from local populations. Professor Dan, what can you add to this? Can you maybe add some additional points to Abike's uh, main goals?
3: Well, there are so many issues here and you haven't really given us much time. So let me address this in two parts. One aspect or one layer of your question really has to do with institutions. So I think it is too simplistic to say that or the World Bank is bad or the World Bank is good. I think the, the, the key issue here is we really have to look into different uh, societies, different contexts. In fact, there's been quite a lot of successful development. Let's just get that out of the question. Not everything is bad. There's a lot of things that actually work, and, and, and that has been also crucial for me to highlight in my work. But when you ask this particular question, I think we have to really look into things like some of my colleagues, like Darren Asimoglu, et cetera, who talk about why nations fail, right? so the role of economic, the role of political institutions is important. Others would say it's actually geography or climate, um, where you are, etc. So I think the role of institutions is crucial here. We have to really think also about there are certain countries, certain states that have been very uh, impressive. You think about certain success stories around the world, irrespective of whether these states have been democratic or not. China is obviously the 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 example, but also on the African continent, you have many success stories in terms of development, in terms of uh, uh, political stability, etc. But there's also this key issue of whether the state is really strong, weak, absent, ceremonial, etc., which is crucial, even though on paper you have a lot of countries who seem to be democratic, everything seems to be doing are going well, they may not actually be doing much and but rather giving the impression that everything is in order and then there's the issue of civil society that either is being prevented from uh, keeping up with the state or is doing quite a lot of running. And so, you know, the extent to which the state and civil society actually interact, the kind of administrative capacity, some, something that we often um, overlook you know the role of the bureaucracy all of these things really play a very important role the the issue about the world bank i think it is really interesting to talk really about multilateralism as we see it at the moment and if there's something that the COVID pandemic has shown us is that like in many previous decades multilateralism perhaps is in crisis a lot of people have been saying multilateralism has been in crisis for a long time But I think there is definitely a feeling uh, in Malawi and elsewhere that the rich world is being increasingly selfish. And if the pandemic has shown something, and that is that, yes, we are very selfish when it comes to crises. We want to look after ourselves. And so the global development architecture is really, really complex. The World Bank is one part of the equation. There's so many other players. And so we really have to think about what these players are doing together, the extent to which there are different agendas, all of this playing out in a context such as Malawi. So, you know, I, I used to head a trust fund in the World Bank for the Norwegian and Finnish government. So I've had close interactions. I've seen how it actually works, and I've been pretty impressed, actually, with how the World Bank has been able to, in many difficult contexts, to, to make a difference, uh, in contrast to many other UN organizations that I seem, you know, for me are extremely weak. But obviously, the bank also has its challenges. It often has a very economistic perspective and often is not willing to really talk about the uncomfortable questions of power and, and politics. So I'll leave it at that, and I'm sure we can return to some of these issues later.
0: Thank you very much, Thank Professor you. Dan. What I've noted as main points here is really you gotta not oversimplify, right? This is absolutely crucial. You gotta consider context. You gotta consider the role of the state. You also gotta consider civil society and obviously the interplay. And that's without even thinking, we gotta consider also the role of multilateralism and how everything comes together. So, obviously, very complex. And thank you for your words. So, moving on. Uh, yeah, and I will be. You're the next question. And what I would like to ask you is institutions such as the International Monetary Fund push a neoliberalist agenda, making loans conditional on deregulation, privatization, and liberalization. These measures have been criticized as having led to deep economic crisis, among them, for example, the Asian crisis of 1997. To what extent does the IMF consider local realities? And given the crisis that have hit this approach has led to you, who ultimately benefits from this approach, the IMF's approach?
1: Um, yeah, I think I'm going to contradict you, Dan, a little bit on your rosy picture of the World Bank that you put there. I work there as well. Uh, I worked all my life with the UN, but I didn't stay too long with the World Bank. I enjoyed more with UNICEF and ILO. Uh, being controversial against IMF and the World Bank uh, because their belief in a one-size-fit-all is so entrenched. And a one-size-fit-all is reflects two things. It reflects intellectual laziness and ideological arrogance. That is what a one-size-fit-all. Uh, my spouse speaks Spanish, so I get a little bit in the Spanish uh, poetry. And a hundred years ago, there was a Spanish poet who put it very nicely uh, for development. And he said, there's a nice song about that. And he said, no hay camino, el camino al andar." So I leave it to the Spanish speaking to translate it correctly. But my translation would be, there's no part. The part is made while you be walking it. Yeah. But they don't do that. They have best practices, they have one size fits all, and that is fundamentally wrong. And of course, that's then associated with conditionalities, and conditionalities, in my humble opinion, are by principle uh, offensive and harmful, even conditionalities that may look at the surface as wonderful, like uh, conditional transfers, cash transfers, that the children have to go to school or something like that, or the children have to be immunised and then the family gets it. But that's taking away the control of the people themselves to decide the over their own living. And and nobody has should have the arrogance, the ideological arrogance, whether they work for UNICEF or they work for the IMF, it really does matter to go that that way. Uh, of course, we have to create the environment for people to do the to take the right decision, but imposing it is is just uh, not the approach to take.
0: Thanks, Jan. What I note here is really the question is how do you give autonomy? How do you provide uh, how do you adapt your context? How do you not impose your model? on a different context, on a different country, on a different society where it's not going to work ultimately, right, because you're taking people's agencies away from them. And I think actually, you know, your points to make a great segue into the next question that I would love to ask Eric and Abinore, which is how can institutions, so the World Bank here and the IMF, reform themselves to support more equitable and sustainable development? Is it even possible? for such institutions to do so, given that they are based on the premises of neoliberalism. And I think this is also a great way to respond to the points of Professor Dan and Yan Abnori, could I invite you to make the first uh, intervention?
4: Yes, thank you very much. Um, I've been listening to the speech of the professor and I've been Taking some very good insights, and it is very much related to, to what I'm going to following and say. At first of all, when it comes to international aid, I would like to relate it to the aspect of peace and how it is, uh, uh, and how it is the approach related to peace today on today's conditions. As 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 it was mentioned by you, we are assumed to live in a peaceful post-colonial era of sustainable development, and nothing disagrees more with that than the current situation. And with Ukraine and also the history itself. And uh, especially now that the focus is on the defense and uh, uh, much of the budget of the countries is going on weapons and army, and it is sad how SDGs will be left aside and ignored now. My My observation now is that this is not new or unexpected. When you think of the past reality and the repeated history, and yet we somehow wanted to believe that now priority is on peaceful development. I sat and thought how many times through my life, I'm not even 30 yet, I had to go through thoughts of crisis and for food and crisis for safety and life-threatening situation. And to me, these were surprises. And when I think of it, it, it should have not been so because world is apparently an open conflict. And if the current situation, but not only raises the question, are people prepared for crisis? And is the world and international organization, including World Bank and others, have the right focus to start with? countries are being prepared to improve on developmental level on a peaceful environment. But what about development on a continuous conflict? At this point, I'm not sure the sustainability of the intervention of the past, not on the approach to the uncertain future. And the big question is, should we stop and focus on survival or change and transform transform entirely and, and my recommendation is to shift the focus on development on a world of never-ending crisis. So there's the big transformation, it is possible. It is something that, I don't know if someone has the right answer, but at least we have to think on that direction.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, Abnora. I think that was a very important point because it is true that we develop, we do development on the premises of peace. And as you were saying, there is no peace. Eric, can I invite you to come in at this stage?
5: Okay, thank you uh, very much. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, debate, and I have really learned from the previous speakers. I think uh, if we want to look at the mentality or the the the, the mindset that most local people, because I I'm, I mostly work with the, with grassroots people. I'm currently working in Cameroon where we are experiencing an armed conflict since 2017. Uh, there's a lot of displacements. Mm-hmm. And now we have a lot of UN agencies around international NGOs coming to give help and so on and so forth. But now, since we relate to people in the field, the questions that usually come up is: we know that there is a UN, and before the UN there was the League of Nations. So it's like the UN, uh, it's like uh, uh, the UN is another toothless bulldog. This is the conception. this is the mentality of the people because they are sitting there and there's a lot of uh, wars happening and the belief that the UN system, uh, which the IMF, the World Bank and other uh, specialized agencies agencies are part of, are part of the systems why they don't want some other countries to progress. For instance, if the IMF is, 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 is giving money to sustain economies, to, uh, to for economic development, to build more industries, to employ people, to fight uh, unemployment, uh, to fight disease epidemies. And then they turn around and say, we are going to give you hundred million, but you, we, you're going to pay back 200 million. So it's like a development in reverse because in most uh, developing countries, we are already experiencing a lot of conflicts and it takes us 10 steps back. So people are questioning, this fast are these eights considered as dead aids so if these institutions are truly standing for the values that they claim that they stand for then they will genuinely come to help people to sustain economies and in the sustainable development agenda there's a whole talk of looking at the 17 goals thinking globally, and acting locally. And most people who have come across from many institutions in Africa, Cameroon, Central African Republic, uh, and Nigeria and other countries, they say that these this, 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 uh, goals are too big, are too superficial, and that those uh, best practices that could be localized, that, that, that could be leveraged on and sold to the global market that works for them is not taken into consideration. And another step is uh, when we look critically at the sustainable development goals, it's like there is a priority over which, which uh, the region to give funds to consider. And people have uh, the impression that uh, Westerners uh, like to create wars And when there is chaos in a country, they now come with uh, development aid, they now come with uh, international NGOs, with uh, foreign governments to give aid, to give uh, humanitarian assistance. And and then, after this period, uh, perhaps in a humanitarian context, which we consider to be emergencies, they leave. And when they leave, those projects that, that they have put in place are not sustainable, it crumbles, and it uh, uh, it creates a new set of problems for more conflicts. So um, I think at that level, there is lack of trust in institutions like IMF, there's lack of trust in who is accountable for all these actions. So I I believe that as as a way forward, uh, we should uh, key into Goal 17, Global Partnership for the Goals, Uh, Many more uh, local examples can be leveraged on and brought up because people feel that these goals are too high, they are too big, they are too superficial, and it has nothing to do with the common man. So I believe that if we work hand in gloves, we look at so many best practices from uh, different institutions, then it's really going to help us to understand how global politics work. Because uh, the truth is, many people, especially in the less developing countries, are beginning to lose hope, are beginning to lose faith in these very institutions, especially in the UN. I can tell you uh, firsthand because I have been abducted, because I currently work in a crisis zone in the northwest and southwest of Cameroon where we are experiencing an armed conflict and there's a lot of uh, humanitarian assistance it creates a new sets of problems you need to do access negotiations there is insecurity there is there are a whole lot of issues but then people are questioning why do they come with help instead of coming to solve the problems they are not coming to address the root cause of the problems but they are coming with more help it means they want people they, they feel they they, they, they they like seeing people suffer. So that they will come like in desires, but again, I think uh, these are just the emotional expressions of people. But again, as uh, as uh, as a very uh, powerful organization that holds its foundation to uh, human rights and a lot of uh, role modeling, I think we need to develop a different approach on how these institutions can help economies to grow so that people can now build more trust in them. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Eric. Eric. And just to prepare the room. So at this stage, I will invite participants to ask their questions and dialogue. But first of all, to wrap up all of these great points, I think the main point here is about agency, right? How do you provide agency? Because with agency, you get trust with trust, you get sustainable systems and you respect the context. I mean, yet again, this is another very important word. How do you work to make sure that people have the agency to to sustainably act in development? How do you make sure that you build long term systems and not just have a one off intervention that will basically not happen anymore when your agency is not there anymore? And I think this is really a key point. Um, And so to kickstart maybe the the conversation with the room, I would also like to ask a question to everyone. So we've been talking about institutions and obviously the institutions play the leading role when it comes to development, but I think there's a wide range of stakeholders who are responsible and have a very important role in. Development. For instance, I work in health and in health it's just WHO. But let's be honest, it's the Gates Foundation. They're the ones who dictate the agenda and they're the ones who, you know, make things happen if they want to happen. And it's crazy when you think about it, right? I mean, it's one philanthropist that's basically dictating the world agenda on health. I mean, this is insane. And it, it leads me to my question to everyone. I mean, to what extent can we consider that multinational corporations dictate development agendas to their investments and their investments treaties? So I guess here it's about, if you want to reflect on the, some of the points that were shared, but also if you want to intervene on this question, please do. Okay, actually, I know, Jan, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on this? And maybe if you want to react on also on some of the points that were shared today.
1: Yeah, on the role of multinational corporations in development, in to some extent, Extent it's the logical outcome of a neoliberal ideology, because you believe in markets, and ultimately the power will leave governments and will become part in the markets, and that is it. Of course, it's also politics, and it's mainly politics because the West has been dominating the UN and the international agenda for the past hundred years. Now it's being challenged. The emerging economies are coming up. It's not only China, it's India, it's uh, Latin American countries, it's South Africa, many, even Kenya. They are coming up and they are they are becoming uh, vocal. And they're using their economic power to make political points. And I saw that at the UN. And of course, the, 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 the transition is difficult. Any Any transition is difficult. So the West is holding on to its historic dominance. And the South is claiming its seat at the table. And, and we are in that transition period now, which will be your world. It hasn't been my world. When I was at the UN, it was Western domin- uh, dominance, yeah? Uh, and, and, and a transition period is always unstable and dangerous, and we are going for that. So um, uh, it's gonna be a rough ride. Yeah? Uh, but but it's, it's also part then of the West to cling to its dominance, because by giving, shifting more power to multilateral cooperation. It's uh, it's ideologically logic for a neoliberal policy, but it's also nice then to keep the power within the West because all these multilateral, multinational corporations that have any meaning are Western, uh, are Western in origin still today. And tomorrow it will remain for the same thing. So it's all about control, about politics about power. But uh, the thing is that we are in a transition period and it's going to be rough in the next uh, several decades, I guess.
0: Thank you, Jan. And I think, indeed, exciting times as we see during COVID, international institutions have not rested, right? I mean, you look at the African Union and all the developments that have happened in the last two years, just to name some, with the launch of the African Medicine Agency, the Africa CDC, we were talking about this before the conference, but I think it's very exciting times, as you say, also uncertain times. What does it mean for the European Union? What does it mean for the United States? We're looking at a shift and and the current crisis with Ukraine is just going to accelerate this trend, right? I don't know if any one of the panellists would like to add anything at this stage. And I'm also obviously turning to the room if anyone wants to add something. Maybe, I don't know, Professor Dan.
3: Thanks. You know, I just noticed that it's really a big disadvantage not to be in the room. Uh, So if I may just have a few minutes to address there's so many issues here. So... Uh, I think I'll just start with Zoheb's question, which is really an excellent question. And it goes back to everything that we're talking about, because it seems that we are dancing around a lot of issues here without really grappling it. One elephant in the room really has to do with what is development and who is it for and who is it being sort of defined by. And so development is itself a very contested notion there is no one way of defining it and so just in the room itself i think the the speaker in the room has a very different idea of development perhaps from many others so i think the the aspect of agency as the moderator you raised is absolutely crucial but the aspect of agency does not just have to do with the west i'm not i'm not here to defend the west or the world bank i am a, i'm an academic i'm balanced independent, and I'm critical. the role of agency has got to do as much with India and China has, you know, as it does have to do with the West. So there's considerable talk on the African continent, how African countries leaders can get better deals in their negotiations with these emerging countries. It's not just the West. So the contested nature of development and also the role of agency And then I think Daniel has several questions that are really interesting. Let me give the point about, or just raise the issue about aid. This is really, again, going back to what I mentioned right in the beginning, there's a lot of feeling here in Malawi, elsewhere, that the rich countries are being selfish. This is during the pandemic, but now we also see because of the Ukrainian war, there is a tendency now, because of uh, increasing number of uh, refugees, in our countries, where some of our governments are now freezing aid that was supposed to be dispersed elsewhere, and they're reallocating that for use within our country. So we become the biggest recipients of our own aid. And that really is a problem. This happened in 2014 during the Syrian crisis, and it's happening now. So we have to really watch out for that. And then I uh, just want to end on one aspect, which may illustrate Daniel's second question i've i've been studying something and this goes back to eric i think you were talking about sustainable development i've been studying charcoal and why charcoal is so popular remains extremely popular in malawi it turns out and this goes back to the issue about the 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 lack or the disconnect between laws and implementation so malawi has a law that banned charcoal. You can't most of the charcoal that is used for cooking, et cetera, is illegal. So that there is a law in place. But if you go on the streets of Malawi in urban areas, in rural areas, charcoal is sold everywhere. And so the question really is why, what is this? You know, why is this happening? It turns out that this policy again, that most likely was influenced by Western aid donors. This is a country that relies heavily on aid talks all the right things, right? It's about combating deforestation, climate change, etc. But in the absence of alternatives, in the absence of electricity or cooking gas, just simply banning charcoal is not going to do. So here again, you know, one can't just impose, I totally agree, Western solutions on others. Everybody here, in the villages etc agrees that deforestation is a problem but they ask if i don't have any other alternative what can i do so i think we have to address these issues in a bit if bit of a different way not just think about implementing or formulating policies that are so obsolete and so so far away from local realities i'm sorry i went on a bit but there's so many issues and and I think really, we need to structure some of these issues. We're talking about aid. We're talking about multilateralism um and 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 many of the nuances is, you know may get lost in translation.,
0: yeah, thank you very much, Professor Dan. and I think you made some great points. Unfortunately, we cannot go on with this part of the conversation as we have to continue. But thank you very much for wonderful points. And if anyone uh, among the assistants would like to ask a question, now's the time. Because now I'm going to move on to the the second part. Okay, so second part of the discussion. So sustainable development in the 21st century. And actually, Eric, you already started making a couple of points that I noted down about the SDGs. Because here, this part is about examining the sustainable development goals on global development and actually, Eric, I'm going to keep you here and I will also invite Abnor, because I would love to invite you to kickstart this conversation with a very long question, which is the sustainable development goals were developed with specific efforts made towards their integration within a more holistic framework for development. However, critics continue to describe them as adhering to similar pro-growth neoliberal models of development that underpin most of the problems that the SDGs are trying to address, including, for example, climate change. And I think that you know addresses some of your points, Professor Dan. And so, to what extent are the SDG goals can they be described as contradictory between goals of growth? but also conservation, for instance. So how much do they actually, to what extent do they address the issue and not, um, let's say, participate to the issue? Abnori, maybe if I can invite you to kickstart this part of the conversation. Yes, thank you.
4: Um, Well, similar questions I've been having uh, being hands-on project uh, implementation with various uh, technical administrative work and supporting and managing activities and thinking if uh, where is this project going uh, are we thinking on uh, impact level and h- how are we uh, approaching uh, these changes and are we actually helping the beneficiary towards reaching these uh, goals and uh, there's a few aspects of it that I could conclude, and one of them, it, it is the first and most important, it is um, the needs assessment, uh, need, the needs assessment is the first thing, because it is an interesting how at the same time a country needs aid, and international organizations are ready to offer aid, and at the same time, this is so, these are so difficult to be met. And sometimes it doesn't feel like uh, uh, the most of it, it is happening. And finding a, a way to properly assess the needs of a country would be beneficial, but it is a bit tricky because I am sure that they do, international organizations do assessment, but yet it feels like local context and needs are ignored. And one reason I see it happen is that there is so much thought on an impact level and work plan is developed after it is decided to go through with a project. And it is hard to bring all relevant actors on board to come up with uh, the with most efficient plan. And more emphasis should be done on prioritizing needs assessment and understanding the root causes of the challenge. For instance, we speak of gender equality and empowerment of women when we want to invite them to various events or, or expressing their needs when we don't take into account that they may not be allowed to even speak or leave a house. Or we speak of digitalization, uh, but do we take into account the digital illiteracy that people of a country face. And there's a huge gap on digital infrastructure between developed and developing countries and their ability to to adapt to digitalization, for instance. And the conservative approach to development will make this gap uh, even wider. I could go on with this, I could go on with this, but uh, just a recommendation would be to have a platform. it's so it has started to become a bit common and a bit of a cliche to have these common and shared platforms and it is hard to keep people on board with these. but we could bring together and put our efforts to make sure that these challenges and recommendations are brought to people, brought from people to facing them to institution and individual to to make sure that we are growth
0: oriented. Yeah, thank you Abnor. I think that these are wonderful points and it really seems from what you're saying but from also part of the discussion beforehand sometimes those that develop AIDS seem to be slightly in their ivory towers right disconnected from reality and um, so your recommendation of including those that are going to be helped from the beginning in the development of their help. I mean, I think this is absolutely key, right? And Eric, I saw you smiling and nodding a lot. I would love to have uh, your point as well.
5: Uh, Yeah, thank you uh, so much. Uh, I think she said a lot of uh, interesting points, but uh, I just wanted to add that uh, sometimes uh, in where I am, because I like to to cite examples from where I'm coming from, people turn to squash aid or practices that come from them, especially from uh, developing countries. There is this uh, mentality that uh, if something does not come from an external body, then it doesn't become serious. People, people are so dependent on, on, on westernization and Americanization in such a way that when even something is so good in their own corner, on their own backyard, prefer something from the external or western world to come first and i just want to to point out that what uh, we really need from what i've observed from my numerous of uh, fuel assessments multi sectoral needs assessments, is um uh, we need to empower the human resources that needs to carry to drive this development agenda there are lots of people who have brilliant and amazing ideas but they have no clue on how to go about it, executing it in order to create a positive social impact. And that creates a new set of problems for the goals. So if somebody takes a concept like uh, zero hunger and does not really uh, understand the concept because they don't have the skill but they have the passion then that's another set of problems that we are creating for ourselves. So I will just hang on this point to say that we need to develop the human resources, to develop, to build competencies, to empower people, to have confidence in their own skills. And they should, uh, one recommendation would be that they should stop, uh, they should start believing in themselves, in their practices, in their ideas, and, Stop our dependence on uh, of a foreign a uh, foreign intervention. I will just like to cite what uh, what uh, one of my uh, the father of African independence, Kwame uh, Nkrumah said. He said that globalization and capitalism in the post-colonial era only brought dependence and financial obligations towards neo towards neo-colonialist nations. And I, I, I begin to think he's, he's right because uh, we need to, of course, embrace these global goals and now as individual entities in separate countries, see how we can work on them independently first before asking for uh, outside help. But again, it's like there is too much of a dependence so that people doubt their own internal capacity to do things right. So I just want to say that uh, this is this has been going on for a very long time in so many areas that I've visited in my field activities, and it is time for us to cause uh, a paradigm shift in the way people, in the lens at which people v- used to view things. Thank you.
0: It- Thank you, Eric. I think that these are also wonderful points. And what I'm noting really is that we need to have a bottom-up approach, right? We need to... I I keep coming back to this word agency, but I think it describes so well, a lot of these debates, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? But it's really empowering the local context, right? And Avnora, you you want to add to this. I see that your hand is up.
4: In fact, as I was um, listening, uh, Eric already made his point, but wanted to add that the only way for sustainable development is through capacity building and capacity development. If an agency wants to live and have a long-term impact, that's the way to go through. And that was just to add from my side for what he was speaking.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so maybe just uh, segue into the next question, and this is where I'm turning to Abike and Jan. So I would love to uh, engage with you on the question of development projects are increasingly being framed within the more holistic framework of the SDGs. However, it is not true for all, as public funds, some public funds, are still being spent on what we uh, more vertical programs that undervalue local context and are therefore unsustainable. And I mean, this goes back to a lot of the points that were already made. So the question here is, how can public funds be allocated towards development to better include local realities and actors? And I know we've already addressed a lot of this, but I would love to have your take and maybe first invite Ibike and then Jan into this discussion.
2: Thanks, Josephine. Um, I'm just gonna take us back ever so slightly and pick back up on the conversation about aid, since you did mention how this aid can sort of lead us to sustainable development in your question. Um, I'm going to borrow the words of an academic who in 2003 did out that aid is more of a gap filler. It should really be a filling role rather than a means to building long-term capacity. And when we do over rely on aid, as Eric pointed out, sustainability is limited. It was also pointed out by the UNDP that um, aid is effective in reaching solutions, but it does tend to displace or inhibit local alternatives. So, I also am of the opinion that um, just kind of backing what Nora and Eric said, that development should be sort of autonomously driven and um, don't really expect. Uh, outside institutions to devote all their resources to sustainable development. It sort of needs to come from within the developing
0: countries. Yeah, thanks very much, Abiki. And actually, this is a really good point. Um, how, who drives aid? I think this is the question, right? I mean, part of this discussion today is, well, aid is driven by international institutions that don't take a context into account. I mean, that doesn't work, right? That's That's, as you were saying, unsustainable. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts on this, Jan. How how do we how do we get you know how do we go past this? How do we build something that's more sustainable that actually works for the local context?
1: Um, yeah, f- first also a nuance bit, uh, regarding the previous question about the. I think it's a fallacy to think that there is a trade-off between growth and sustainability. It's not. Uh, I think uh, it's uh, of course growing the way we have been growing. Yes, then there would be a trade-off. But there are many ways of changing our growth model, and I think growth is still part of the solution. I don't think we can get away without it. So uh, that's an important news I wanted to make. I, I think this th- that's uh, the the answer to my question has has been put on the table some several years ago uh, when 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 aid was was being discussed among the donors with uh, OECD DAC. And, and then the principles of alignment, harmonization, uh, collaboration, co- coordination, and all, and budget support, everything was put on the table. Of course, since then, budget support has faded away uh, big time. Uh, much donors are much less eager today Uh, to do it. And I think ultimately, I think budget support remains the best way of approaching it. But of course, that implies that the donor loses control over the money and the essence of donorship. And it's so entrenched, it goes so deep that uh, donorship means I fund, so I decide and you execute. And if it doesn't work, blame the poor. Then it's institution, it's corruption, it's bribery, and things like that, that's donorship. And 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 up to today, I'm still deeply troubled by how deeply that is entrenched by people I have worked with for forty years in in the, in, the, in the UNICEF as well. It's not only the World Bank, absolutely not. This don this concept of donorship is so toxic that I have the money. I decide and you execute, that is what, and, and that stays there. And that means that budget support, since conditionality really didn't work. Yeah? Governments are smarter than what they thought in the Washington Consensus. So they moved around uh, the conditionality and then the donor said, oops, it doesn't work, because they thought that through conditionality they would remain in control of budget support monies. But that didn't work and so now they're pulling out and they're going back to program support and project support and and, and that is not a solution but the, the principles that were agreed a long time ago on alignment harmonization collaboration and and budget support is is there. final point the mistake we make in this debate is often to say that aid is a substitute now aid is at best a support Never a substitute for development. Yeah? Development is always indig- endogenous. It has to come, as as the previous speaker rightly said, it has to come from within, and aid can be an important support. Yeah? the The traditional example is uh, is Korea in the 60, 50s and 60s, yeah, that it worked, but uh, it wasn't imposed, nothing was imposed on the Koreans to make that shift from developing country to developed country, as some would say. It. But, but aid, that's the wrong deal. We can discuss aid, but always being aware that at best, it's at the margin of what we should be discussing about. But of course, donors love to put aid at the center of the debate because then they, they are then as well at the center of the debate. But development debate should not be about aid. It should be about something else.
0: Thank you very much. And a lot of big points here. I think, first of all, the question of changing the, the paradigm of growth, which is absolutely essential. Then there's a question of donorship and who, own, who uh, has the control, basically, of the aid and also Rethinking aid. Aid is not uh, a driver, it is a support. I think these are really important points and I'm I'm getting cues that we have 15 minutes until the end of the debate. So I would like to invite first, first Professor Dan and then I see that Eric wants to make a point. Professor Dan.
3: Thank you very much. Since I'm in the process of highlighting elephants in the room, let me highlight another one that is the role of national elites. We haven't really been talking about that. This is not a one-sided process. It is not just outsiders coming in. There are actually elites that promote this kind of attitude, that um, enact policies to please outsiders, to please donors, to uh, to enact uh, conditionality however these are defined, giving the sense that they are acting in the benefits of those they represent sometimes or I would say, in many cases, they don't. And so it isn't just a one way street. There are actually many national elites who who are just more interested in their own affairs um, and may not even know what is really important. Since we're talking about sustainable development here, I think we have to also point out that this has been the most the 2030 agenda is really ambitious. Okay, so this was the most consultative participatory process in the whole history of development, everybody was consulted. This wasn't a top-down UN-led thing that experts in the basement of the UN building, uh, you know, put together, which was actually the case with the Millennium Development Goals. SDGs were much more, you know, consultative. And what is important here, we shouldn't forget, is that it's really like a menu. It's got both the developmental but also the environmental climate change issues that were being neglected during the MDGs. So it's a lovely template. It's very colorful. It rests on national governments doing you know, their bit. It is important to operationalize these. Rwanda is doing so. China is doing so. India has operationalized. Many countries are actually sometimes neglecting certain goals and focusing on others. So it took eight years, I think for people really to start getting their act together. But now things are moving. So again, let's just be a bit balanced here. Not everything is going down the hill. There is actually some progress. However, I think the, the key issues for us to really debate has to do with when the international community talks about we will promote global development, the question really is, who is the we? It is very easy to talk about. We will do this. We will do that. It, the accountability of the international community is very diffuse and the concrete case really has to do with financing development. So with the SDGs, the private sector was supposed to be the main driver. I mean, most analysis find that the private sector has basically failed in providing the kind of finances that is required to finance the SDGs. So a lot of countries like Malawi are then thinking, okay, what are the other options? Taxation. But the economy is quite small. There's a lot of informal sector. Who do we tax? How do we get the money? Okay, so that is an issue. And then, you know, you're back to somehow relying and trade is, of course, limited. The pandemic hasn't helped and so one again ends up relying on aid so just financing the sdgs is turning out to be a problem and a key issue really has to do with asking the following question to ngos to to development agencies whoever have the sdgs really changed how we do development because it seems to me that everybody has their pet sdg if they were doing food If they were doing water, if they were doing infrastructure, they're just doing more of the same. The key principle of the SDGs for me is integration. How do we actually get, uh, you know, integrate all of these goals? Most policymakers here on the ground would tell me, you know, our policy space is very constrained. We don't have the finances. I think the speaker in the room mentioned that aid of course, aid agencies would say you know here's the money do as we say so you have that conditionality policy space is restricted but more importantly in fact it turns out a lot of governments are allocating as within their budgets they're actually allocating money for the promotion of sdg so that is something that we should be aware of but the key question is how do you actually have a sequencing of development. This is what policymakers are concerned with. They say the SDGs are too ambitious. You know, you expect us to do everything at the same time. Can you please tell us what's the first step? What's the second step? Forget about trade-offs. Just tell us, is there a specific sequencing? And most often we don't really have an answer to that.
0: Well, thank you very much, Professor. I think you make some great points, right? I mean, the menu. I think it's it's a great analogy, right? It's, as you say, some organizations say, oh, we're all about SDG3 on health. Some are just going to be, no, it's all environments or water. That doesn't work, right? Because everything's connected and you can't just try to address one thing in a silo. I mean, that's, that kind of goes back to vertical funding models, right? Where you only pay for an intervention. And that's how is that sustainable? I mean, for instance, you're you're paying for a clinic for eight patients, but you have no money for ambulances in the country. That doesn't work ultimately. Eric, you you wanted to make a point. I'd like to come back to you.
5: Uh, Thank you once more. I think uh, the professor already made some very great points that were in my mind. So it's like he read my mind and spoke about these things. So uh, thank you, professor. I I learned a lot. Thank you. No need to repeat.
0: Thank you, Eric. Um, So at this stage, I'd like to uh, engage with Abike and Abnore as we're going towards the end of this session and there will also be questions. Um, Just to to kick to start first, and I think Professor Dan and and Jan, you both talked about it, you touched upon it, the role of the private sector, because you were saying it was supposed to be driven by the private sector. To to what extent uh, is the private sector using this to? Would we call it greenwashing or just kind of, you know, bringing, showing their practices under a better light? To to what extent are they using this for their own a, ends instead of actually, you know, working towards more development? And maybe Abike, if I can bring you on to this point?
2: Yes, of course. Uh, I think the private sector, of course, play a really important role. And if you ask me, I think... We do need to be tapping in way more to private sector investment because I think that could be a great path towards more sustainable development. Um, I also think that it's our terrain. I mean, I'm African, I'm Nigerian, and I work in Africa for Africans, so I we know it best. Um, at the African Development Bank, we have the Africa Investment Forum, which. Was actually a platform put together to invite uh, private sector investment to the continent. We work with uh, investors to track the deals all year and then we bring them to a bankable stage and we ensure that these are the kind of private sector uh, activities that we would want going on that would make a big impact. Uh, in the last uh, boardroom, set of boardroom sessions, $30 billion of interest was recorded. So I think it's really important that we take advantage of the fact that this is our terrain, we have the power to create policies, create laws, and as institutions aside from providing we're leading the discussions to ensure that governments are up to date on how they can protect their countries from this, these sorts of practices which you mentioned. I just think that we can create more similar platforms that can work to close investment gaps and uh, satisfy all the requirements that we would like. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. I think it's it's a great point talking about the newer platforms. And I think it, it feeds into the discussion that this is a changing landscape and initiatives like this are absolutely key. Um, Abnori, can I invite you to add in on to this discussion?
4: Uh, yes, uh, very briefly and in general, I would like to add that there will always be a correlation and codependency between development, international investment and business into international relation as they create codependency and their impact is an even greater Countries start to depend on each other and more e- even on an economical level and security level and uh, when that happens, there is also then a need to compromise. And we can see that the fact of this codependency can be observed on inflation happening through in the world, through sanctions happening in just two different countries that are nothing, you think it's nothing related to you, to your country. And you see the impact that uh, that uh, economic um, bonds have uh, in the world
0: in general and, and international relations and vice versa, I mean. Yeah, thank you very much. I think the word codependency describes it very well. So at this stage, uh, I would like to draw everyone's attention to questions on a Slido questions from participants. Um, so I might just uh, take one second to let everyone read the questions. And maybe I would invite uh, maybe Yana's first to come in on one of the questions here if you'd like to weigh in. I actually, I also see that uh questions are directed towards professor bannick so if uh you would like to also weigh in i see that you're nodding so i might invite you first to come in
3: thank you i'm so delighted that somebody in the audience listens to my podcast that's one of the few things that was positive for me during the uh, pandemic i actually found time to do so in case others are interested it's called in pursuit of development and it's available on all uh, channels yes so one of the things well many of these topics are actually the focus of my conversations with friends and colleagues and um including un people politicians and academics so one of the topics that we frequently touch upon is soft power and some of it of course has to do with aid i can start with my own country norway we are humanitarian giants we don't have military power, but we have this reputation of being generous providers of aid. And basically, to be brutally honest, it gives us a seat at the table. We're a small country of five million people, but because we provide so much aid, we get to have influence. So it's good for us, I would say, that we're giving money. So there's an absolute clear, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. So the Norwegian public may not be convinced of what I'm saying, but that really is important. So aid gives us, you know, a seat at the table. The same thing is true for India. The same thing is true for China, for most countries. So I think um, uh, when one does not provide aid, and of course, I have to say that aid is just not, you know, meant as a one-sided thing. There there are actually very, um, aid is not given as gifts there's always something that one expects in return and I think the crucial question here is not just the motives of the giver but what we really need to better understand is the expectations of what the giver wants actually from the recipients and so reciprocity is what we should be talking more of I'm sorry I've taken too much of your time
0: no thank you very much I I like the word reciprocity I think it um goes well with codependency. It goes well with multilateralism. I think it's it's a big part of today's conversation. So I'm being told that someone in the audience would like to ask a question. Uh, yes, please ask your question and also direct, if possible, your question to one member of the panel.
6: Uh, then I will direct my question to uh, Professor Banik, because um, you have mentioned a fair few times that when we talk about development, it's from somewhat Iran's perspective as western governments imposing these rules and norms and other and these institutions and so on and by erroneous, i don't mean that that doesn't happen at all but if, but there are other, other dimensions you mentioned national elites and so on so the question i'd ask is that can we can do you have any comments on what we could term perhaps internal colonialism or such practices that are that happen when um certain national governments the national elites in the in the global south they develop indigenous land and essentially push indigenous populations out of this land in pursuit of their own development goals. So some concrete examples of that would be the hill populations in Bangladesh, the Chakma and so on, the Orangasli in Malaysia and things like that. So it's essentially colonialist practices uh, being pursued by the global south.
3: That's really such an excellent question. I hope you and I can have a longer chat later on. Um, Since we're running out of time, let me just say that the way in which development is conceived often is through the eyes of the state, whether it is through national elites or or international organizations, donors, etc. There is, unfortunately and surprisingly so, less of a focus on what was previously referred to as the bottom-up perspective, basically asking people, what kind of development do you want? And so while we see development through the eyes of the state in terms of planning, it's this helicopter view of development. Uh, My mentor, James Scott, the anthropologist would say, you know what, sometimes people want to flee from the state. Maybe development means just the freedom to live in a society without having that kind of control from the helicopter. So I think it is merging the idea of what others can do with with what you really want, that really is at at the crux of the problem. And I see this in Malawi, for example, in relation to charcoal, the state and the international community saying, don't cut down your forest. This is bad for you. It's going to lead to frequent droughts. But people say, I can't think about tomorrow when I have nothing to survive on today and that is why I'm cutting it down and the and the two perspectives are so polarized that there is no in between and so for me development is reaching that sweet spot in between where one takes care of the interests of those who are most hit by some of these crises while at the same time thinking also somewhat medium term and long term I'm sorry that was a vague answer but I'd love to have a chat with you later on this
0: We'll make sure to maybe share your email address so you can continue that exchange. Uh, so powerful words to close a debate that was I found wonderful debates. If if I have to wrap up, which is obviously very complicated because it was a complex debate, I might just uh, pick up some words, words that described a lot of this discussion. Right, one word that I got was agency. You need to give agency. Then you have to take context into account. And you also need to understand that you're you're in a changing landscape, right? That the the premises of aid are not the ones that are actually uh, correspondent to local realities, and we need to understand that aid and development always happens in a context of crisis, and this is very much what's happening. I mean, finally. The premises of also the West and uh, let's say the Global North helping the Global South are not real anymore. They're not true anymore. We're living in a changing landscape. This is very exciting times. This is stressful times. This is times that is transforming, uh, that are transformative, and this is what you will all be building at this university. So I hope that you all found this debate as interesting as I did, and I was delighted to be invited to moderate. And at this stage, I think I'm gonna be inviting uh, Chris and Fabio to uh, make the closing statements for today's conference. Thank you very much everyone. Thank you panelists.